Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. Today's lesson is one of my all-time favorites. Beginning in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, we branch off in a quest of self-examination. We each need to ask ourselves, am I a beacon? Today's lesson defines what it means to be a beacon and then provides a great ten-question test to help us determine if we really are letting our little light shine. Are you ready to find out if you're a beacon? Then get out your Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, and let's study God's Word together. This Little Light of Mine. A children's song. And yet it's not a children's message. We sing other songs that have the same concept and message and yet not sung quite so simply and therefore not quite as pointedly. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Well, let's say blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. All around the neighborhood, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. Is your light shining? Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Like our first century brethren, we live in a crooked and twisted generation. But Paul wants us to stand out as innocent and blameless, shining lights in the world, we are to be as the stars that twinkle and dance in the midst of the vast expanse of inky black space. As sailors once charted their course for a safe harbor by using the nighttime stars as beacons, we need to live in such a way that those who are around us can chart their course to safety from our lives. And so we have to ask the question, am I a beacon? But before we get into the heart of this lesson, we need to consider why this is such an important question. Why do we even need to ask this question? Why do we even need to worry about it? Did you notice that there at the end of verse 16, Paul talked about the fact that they needed to be lights in the world so that his labor would not be in vain? What was his labor about? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22 says to us that, that Paul said, I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. What was the goal of his labor? Salvation. And so when Paul says that when you've done this, my labor has not been in vain, he's saying that when you've done this, you're saved. Being a beacon, being a light of the world is not just about something for everyone else, it's about us. This is what it takes to be saved. Paul is basically saying if you're a beacon, if you're a light of the world, then you have salvation. But if you're not, if, you don't, if you're not a beacon, if you're not letting your light shine, then you're lost. And it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you put in the plate. If you're not letting your light shine, if you're not being a beacon, then you're not going to heaven. 
This is not a checklist question. This is not a question that we say, well, I'll get to that later. This is a question of eternal life and death. And that's why we need to ask, am I a beacon? Before we consider what it means to be a beacon and, and what we need to do to be beacons, would you go, with the, go to God in prayer with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise you because you are worthy of honor and glory. You are the great light that shines down from heaven, and your Son is the light of the world. And we pray that we might reflect that light to the world so that they can follow us to heaven. We pray that we will be beacons. Help us, Father, and strengthen us so that we might shine your light to the community around us as individuals and also as a congregation. Father, forgive us for the times when we've covered our lights, when we've put the light out, when we've walked in darkness. Help us to turn away from that and to avoid the tempter's traps and to follow you. Help us to follow your word that is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to reflect that light so that others might be drawn into your family. Open doors for us that we might spread your gospel and we might add other people to the light that are down here on the earth. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for loving us. For your Son's name we pray. Amen. When we consider what it means to be a beacon, we need to recognize that the light does not originate with us. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, speaking to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then again, in John chapter 9 and verse 5, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then John chapter 12 and verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. And He is that light of the world because He is the Word of life. You'll remember in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus, or Jesus had revealed, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 4 it says that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was and is the Word of life. But not only is He the Word of life, He has the words of life. In John chapter 6 and verse 68, Peter's confession, To whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Not only is Jesus the Word of life, but Jesus has the words of life. And that's why back in John chapter 1 and verse 4, John revealed that the life was the light of men. That's why Jesus is the light and we're not. If we're trying to generate our own light, if we somehow think that by the number of good works that we have done, that we are somehow special, and we're generating a light for everybody to look at us and be just like us because of how good we are, we're no better than the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14 who were blind guides of the blind. And we know what happened to them. Jesus said both would fall into the ditch. We have to understand that we merely reflect the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And we must reflect that light to the world. But we can't forget the admonition of Psalm 119 and verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We cannot reflect the light of Jesus to the world unless we are walking in His word that He recorded. We're not reflecting Jesus' light by our think-sos, by our preferences, by our ideas. 
but only, as Paul said there in Philippians chapter 2, when we are holding fast to the Word of life. We're only reflecting Jesus' light when we're walking in His Word. So he asked the question, when am I a beacon? When am I a beacon? We are beacons when we are reflecting the light of Jesus to the world by walking in Christ's Word so that the world can follow us to heaven. When are we beacons? We are beacons when we are reflecting the light of Christ to the world by walking in Christ's Word so that the world may follow us to heaven. Paul was the beacon. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, he was able to say, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul was able to say, imitate me. People could follow Paul. And then in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You see, Paul was a beacon. People could chart their, the course of their life from Paul and they could go to heaven with Paul. And that's what it means to be a beacon. And so we ask ourselves, am I a beacon? Am I a light of the world? Can people look at my life and follow what I'm doing and chart a course for heaven? And there's no doubt there's a sense in which in order to answer this question, we need to study every verse in the Bible. We need to take everything that's there in the Word of God and make sure that we're applying it to our lives. And and I hope that you're doing that. I hope that you are taking time to study God's Word on your own. I hope that you're not relying on what happens here in this pulpit. I hope that you're not merely relying on what happens in our classes. I hope that you're going back to the Word and you're holding fast to it and you're studying it and you're applying every bit of it to your life as God wants it to. But for tonight's lesson, what I want to do is just take a series of questions. As we ask, am I a beacon? I want to share with you a series of questions that you can ask. You can ask this when you're making choices in your daily life. You can ask this regarding your goals and say, am I a beacon? When you ask these questions and ask them honestly with a sincere motivation, this will help you be a light to the world. Now, as I demonstrate these questions, as I share these with you, we're going to take a look at these flipping back and forth from the individual to the congregation. We want to ask these questions of both as individuals. Are we as individual Christians beacons? Is the congregation that we're part of, is it a beacon, a city set on a hill, if you will, that can't be hidden because of what we're doing? I know we blitzed through the first part of those notes. I hope you haven't given up on it, but it'll be a little bit easier to go through the rest of it. I hope you have your notes out so that you can keep track of these questions and take them home with you and study them yourself. Here we go. Question one. Am I doing this in the name of the Lord? Am I doing this in the name of the Lord? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through Him. This is a question of authority. This is a question of making sure that we are using the proper authority. This is saying that if Jesus were sitting right next to us, we'd be able to say, yes, Lord, what I am about to do, I am doing with your permission. I am doing with your empowerment. I am doing this with your blessing. 
And so we need to ask. Can we drink what we're drinking in the name of the Lord? Can we eat what we're eating in the name of the Lord? Can we wear what we're wearing in the name of the Lord? Can we go where we're going in the name of the Lord? Can we touch what we're touching in the name of the Lord? Can we watch what we're watching in the name of the Lord? Could we say with all of those things that, yes, Lord, I have Your permission and blessing, and if You were sitting right here, You'd be happy that this is what I'm doing. And what about as a congregation? Can we say to the Lord that, that what we are doing, if the Lord walked into our midst and He saw the work that we're doing and the plans that we have and the goals that we're pursuing, could we say to Him, yes, Lord, we're doing this with Your blessing. We're doing this with Your permission. Here's the book, chapter, and verse that has empowered us and authorized us to pursue the work that we're pursuing. Do everything in the name of the Lord. Everything with His permission. Everything with His blessing. Or are we doing it according to our own authority and our own things so? When we ask the question, am I a beacon? We have to ask, am I doing this in the name of the Lord? Am I doing it with the proper authority? The second question we need to ask is, am I surrendering to God? Am I surrendering to God? This is a question of lordship. I'd like for you to look at a couple of passages. Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 26, Jesus taught, if anyone comes to me, this is Luke 14 and verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then again in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Surrendering to God means carrying a cross. Surrendering to God means giving up our all, handing it over to Him. Or look in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus drilled down a little bit more specifically in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You see, surrendering to God sometimes means that we have to cut off our hands, pluck out our eyes. It means that we have to give up what is important to us when we're surrendering to God. Or what about Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20? In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, another one of the children's songs that we sing in our Bible drill, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Surrendering to God means being crucified with Christ. It means putting us up on the cross and Christ on the throne in our lives. Sacrificing ourselves which takes us to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul said, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. A living sacrifice. Surrendering to God means sacrificing ourselves and just handing ourselves over to God. Surrendering to God is not about checklist religion. 
Surrendering to God is not about figuring out what the minimum required output is. It's not about figuring out what the maximum permission is. It's not about figuring out how much heaven I have to have in my life so that I can stay out of hell. And it's not about figuring out how much of the world I can keep in my life and still go to heaven. Surrendering to God, it's the fact that, let's face it, we've been at war with God. And at some point, we've got to come to grips with that, the fact that we can't win. And so we just surrender. And say, God, you're in control. And I'm not going to try to figure out how much is enough and how much is too much. I'm just going to go your way because your way is right and your way has life and my way has death. And so why would I argue with God about it? I'm just going to pursue God's way because He's now the Lord. He's the one making the decisions and I'm not. And so that's what we need to ask about about those decisions. Who's actually making those decisions? Who's the Lord of that decision? Your next career move, who's making that decision? That thing that you're about to say to your wife or your husband, who's making that decision? What you're about to say to your parents or your child, who's making that decision? Who's the Lord over that? Is that Jesus living through us? Or is that us taking back the reins of our life and trying to sit on the throne and control it ourselves? Or what about as a church? Are we surrendering to God as a congregation? Or do we surrender to the biggest family? Or the biggest contributors? We're making choices. And we compromise on those choices because we're afraid of who we're upsetting and who might leave. That's not surrendering to God. We surrender to God when we let Him be the Lord and lead us in whatever we do. So when we ask the question, am I a beacon? We have to ask, am I surrendering to God? Do I have the right lordship? Am I glorifying God? This is actually a question of goals. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, in Matthew 5 and verse 16, again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said there in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If they see your good works, it shouldn't be about seeing how good you are, but about how good God is and glorifying Him. It shows us the opposite of this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. In Matthew 6 and verse 1, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When we're trying to shine our own light, we have no reward. Except for what men might say about us. And that won't help us at all in judgment. Notice why this is a question of gold. Because as you consider those two passages, you recognize it's not necessarily about the particular action that you're following. The thing that you're doing might be right, like the almsgiving or the prayers or the fasting there in Matthew chapter 6. Those were right things to do, but they were doing them for the wrong reasons. They were doing them for the wrong goals. They were trying to be seen of men instead of glorifying God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what's the goal? Why am I preaching that sermon? I heard of one brother who left the church because the church didn't announce that he was going to fill in to preach some other place. Why are you leading that singing? Why are you leading that prayer? Why are you writing that check? What's the goal? Is it to glorify God or to look good and improve your personal reputation? 
What about as a church? What's our goal as a church? Is our goal to glorify God? Or is our goal to appease the community so that they'll like us? Is our goal maintaining nice buildings in large numbers? When folks come to us, is our goal to tell them, here's all the things that we'll do for you? Or is our goal to turn them so that they'll be glorifying God? What's our goal? Because if we're going to be a beacon, we have to ask the question, am I glorifying God with this? Do I have the right goal? Then we have to ask ourselves, am I sowing to the flesh or am I sowing to the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 demonstrates to us two warring factions in our lives that are trying to get us on divergent paths, the flesh and the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You notice then that this is a question of guidance. What is leading me? Is it the flesh and the desires of my flesh? Or is it the Spirit and the will of God? Am I sowing to the flesh or to the Spirit? Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 demonstrate why this is important. It says in Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. We'll reap death. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap life. And so, am I sowing to the flesh or am I sowing to the Spirit? That party that I'm going to, is that more like the joy and happiness of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it more like the immorality, sensuality, and orgies and drunkenness of the works of the flesh? That thing that I'm about to do with my boyfriend or girlfriend, is that more like the love and self-control of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it more like the immorality and sensuality of the works of the flesh? That lottery ticket that I'm about to buy, is that more like the peace and contentment of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is that more like the covetousness and greed of the works of the flesh? What am I sowing to? What's leading me here? And as a congregation, we need to ask the same thing. What we do in our assemblies and what we do in our classes, what, what's guiding us? What's leading us in those things? Is it the Word of God and the spiritual things of the Spirit or is it trying to entertain the masses and have fun? What is it that's leading us? Because if we want to be a beacon, we've got to ask, am I sowing to the flesh or the Spirit? Do I have the proper guidance? Our fifth question is somewhat similar. It extends that fourth one. Am I providing for the lusts 
of the flesh. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, Paul said, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is a question of honesty. Because I recognize that providing for the lust of the flesh is not the same as pursuing the lust of the flesh. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I recognize that, that going to a beach or a water park where we're going to be surrounded by scantily clad people of the opposite gender is not necessarily the same thing as lusting after them. But brothers, what do we honestly think we're going to do? You know, it's interesting. We don't intend to sin consciously. And yet somehow, sometimes we just end up there and we sit back and say, well, I didn't mean to. The problem is we didn't mean not to. This concept of provision is like we've said before. It's like providing for a trip. If, if you're going on a trip, what do you got to do? You got to pack the bags. You got to gas up the car. You got to study the map. All these things are providing for the trip so that you can make the trip properly. As Christians, we need to be providing for a trip of holiness. But what all too often happens is we pack the bags for sin, we gas up the car for sin, we study the map of sin, and then we get surprised when we sin. Let's face it, if we're going to provide for the lusts of the flesh, let's not be surprised when we fall prey to the lusts of the flesh. Because that's what's going to happen. And so, we need to ask questions of ourselves like, what exactly is it that I expect to get out of this trip to the beach? What exactly is it that I expect to get when I walk down this magazine aisle? What exactly is it that I expect to get out of this party that I'm going to? What is it that I expect to get out of this job choice that I'm making? What is it I expect to get out of this TV show that I'm watching? Why is it that I'm choosing that particular search term on my Google's image search? If there's even that smallest part of us that's sitting there saying, well, you know, I kind of hope that maybe accidentally something will just crop up so that when it's all said and done, I can kind of say that it really wasn't my fault. We need to back up and redirect. Because if we're going to be a beacon, we have to ask, am I providing for the lusts of the flesh? Am I being honest with myself? Am I professing godliness? 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 4, let's back up to verse 7. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 and 8, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Training in godliness is much better than bodily training. Godliness, in contrast to those irreverent silliness, godliness is the idea of reverence. It's the idea of honor. Paul, very interestingly, made this very specific with Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 10 when he told him to teach the women that they needed to dress in a way that was proper for women who profess godliness with good works. They need to dress in a way that professed honor and reverence for God. And so we need to ask ourselves, is the, does the way I dress honor God? 
Does the way I talk honor God? Does the way I walk honor God? Does the places I go to, do they honor God? Do the, do the shows that I watch and the things that entertain me, do they honor God? This song that I'm singing along with on the radio, does that honor God? This joke that I'm about to tell, does that honor God? We need to remember that we are Christians and we wear the name of Christ. Everything we do reflects on Him. Does it reflect in honor or in dishonor? This is a question of honor. What about as a church? Does what we do as a church profess godliness? What we do when we come together as a congregation, does it demonstrate honor for God? We need to understand that godliness doesn't necessarily mean crawling around on our knees, groveling before God. It doesn't mean necessarily always being somber and emotionless. But we need to understand that what we do here should be done together with reverence and awe, not flippantly, not lightly. This is not for our entertainment. This is to honor and glorify God. So if we're going to be deacons, we have to ask, am I professing godliness? Do I have the right honor? Am I set apart for holiness? Am I set apart for holiness? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then in verse 7 it says, For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. God has not called us to impurity, but called us to holiness. That idea of being set apart. This is like the vessels in the Old Testament that were cleansed and blessed and set apart to be used in the temple, to be used in God's service. This is saying that that's what God has done for us. When we became His children, He set us apart. We were cleansed and set apart for His use. And so this is a question of usefulness. As we see from First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Paul said, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Am I set apart for holiness? And what about as a congregation? Are we set apart for holiness? The world and even the religious world is trying to bring us down to the mundane. As it says that what we're supposed to be about is entertainment and recreation. They want us to have mops and Mother's Day out programs. They want us to have youth groups that take Six Flags trips. And they want us to set up inner city soup kitchens so that the homeless can be cared for. And every single one of those things are good works. They're just not the work that God set apart His church to accomplish. He set apart His church so that people can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to be doing. Are we demonstrating to the world that we are set apart for holiness? Or do we just want to pursue the same things that everybody else in the world thinks is a good work? We're going to be beacons. We have to ask, am I set apart for holiness? Do I have the right usefulness to God? Am I hungering for righteousness? This is a question of passion. What am I passionate about? Am I hungering for righteousness in these things that I'm about to do? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. In Matthew 5 and verse 6, it said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's what we're supposed to be hungering for, is the righteousness of God and His kingdom, seeking it first above all other things. 
We see a contrast in Philippians chapter 3. Paul, remember, in verse 17, talked about his, his own, the fact that he was a beacon. But then in verse 18, he provides a contrast. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their pursuit and their passion wasn't God's righteousness. It was their own flesh and their own fleshly desires, their own belly, the things that, that they wanted to pursue the things that were shameful. So what am I hungering for? When I do this thing that I'm about to do, when I'm making this career decision, why is it that I hunger for this coming promotion? There's nothing wrong with promotions on the job, but if I'm hungering for it because of its power and prestige and money, then I'm not being a beacon. If I'm hungering for it because of the opportunity it has for me to be righteous, we're shining our light. What am I hungering for? As a church, we need to ask that. What are we hungering for? Is it righteousness or entertainment and fun? Is it righteousness or pleasing the community and making them happy with us? Is it righteousness in God's kingdom or is it receiving the praises of men? Are we hungering for righteousness? Two more. Am I cheerful about it? There in Philippians 2.14, we even looked at this verse this morning. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do without grumbling. Do without complaining. Do without murmuring. Do without whining. You see, the fact is, if we're asking all these questions, and we're trying to live by good answers on them, but we're doing it through gritted teeth because, oh, I hate doing this, but I guess I just have to because this is what it takes to go to heaven. And we're not being beacons. Now think about it. When Marita asks me to do something, and I do it, but I do it grumbling and shouting and slamming doors and shoving drawers. Am I being a beacon of light to my kids to show them how to be real servants? Of course not. If we're going to be a beacon, we have to have the proper attitude. This is a question of attitude. Am I cheerful about serving the Lord? Or is the Lord's will burdensome to me? What about as a congregation? Are we cheerful about following the pattern of God? Are we happy and joyous about being able to get into His Word and do things His way? Or do we grumble and complain about it and just, well, I guess I have to do it that way because because that's what the preacher said. Do we apologize for the doctrine of Christ? Well, I hate to tell you this, but Matthew 5, I just, I just hate that I have to do this, but Matthew 5.32 says your marriage is not lawful. Do we apologize for God's will? Now, I'm not saying that when we have to tell folks that they're lost, that that should make us happy. And I'm not saying that when we have to offer to them news about the, their lives that's, that, that's not going to be pleasing to them, that we just do it with a smile. But I'm just pointing out that we need to be glad for the opportunity to teach Christ's will because Christ's will is where the life is, and this is what's going to save them. What kind of attitude do we have? Because if we're going to be beacons, we have to ask, am I cheerful about it? Do I have the right attitude? And finally, am I standing out? Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans 12 and verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're not to be formed with the world. We're to be transformed 
changed different. It means we're going to stand out. And you know, here's the issue. What, you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to tell somebody about this sermon that you heard and all these questions are going to look at you and say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Nobody in their right mind would do that. A normal person wouldn't go through all that. But we're not normal, brethren. We're beacons. And we are going to stand out. And the folks of the world are going to think that what we're doing is stupid. They're going to think that it is crazy. They're going to think that we are out of our minds. And that's why this is a question of commitment. Am I committed enough to God to be a beacon when the darkness is going to malign me, as 1 Peter 4 and verse 4 says? And stand out. What about as a congregation? Are we willing to stand out? We don't define what we do by just making sure that we're different. The issue, however, is, is that when we do what God says and that makes us different, that we don't back off and we don't compromise. We stand out. Because we're committed to God's way. Because His way is life. These are tough questions. These are not easy questions. And I don't intend on answering these questions specifically for you. And I recognize that as we direct these questions to specific actions, that sometimes you and I may answer some of them a little bit differently. And we're going to have to learn how to work together when we can on those. But I also want to share with you that these questions aren't always going to be answered by one specific verse that draws a line in the sand. Do you remember what it says in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 12? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That concept of working out our salvation with fear and trembling is the idea that we're working to draw closer to God. We're working to be more what God wants us to do. We're working hard to be a beacon, but we have that fear that we're just not doing enough. That we're not going far enough. We're not getting close enough. We're not drawing near enough. And so we keep pushing and doing more. But that's a little bit of a frightening place to be in. Sometimes we become so frightened that we might give up, but that's why the next verse is there to comfort us. That we're not doing it alone. God is with us and working in us to work and to will for His good pleasure. See, if we ever say, I've gone far enough, I've done enough, I'm good enough, then we quit being beacons and our light goes out. But when we rely on God and His work in us and we keep pressing on, pursuing righteousness and holiness and godliness, standing out, then we'll be a beacon. Are you a beacon? This little light of mine. Is it still shining? I hope it pushes you to look at your own heart and make sure Jesus' light is reflecting from you to the world. Let's remember what we learned. We are beacons when we reflect the light of Jesus to the world by walking in Christ's word so the world can follow us to heaven. There are ten questions we can ask to help us determine if we are living as beacons. Number one, am I doing this in the name of the Lord? A question of authority. Number two, am I surrendering to God? A question of lordship. Number three, am I glorifying God? A question of goals. Number four, am I sowing to the flesh or to the spirit? A question of guidance. Number five, 
Am I providing for the lusts of the flesh? A question of honesty. Number six. Am I professing godliness? A question of honor. Number seven. Am I set apart for holiness? A question of usefulness. Number eight. Am I hungering for righteousness? A question of passion. Number nine. Am I cheerful about it? A question of attitude. Number ten. Am I standing out? A question of commitment. I don't share these questions with you because I always answer them in the best way, but because I know they help. I encourage you to use these questions to help you grow closer to Christ. If this lesson helped you, please let someone else know about it, and feel free to use it in any way you believe will benefit the kingdom and glorify God. If you have any questions or have a prayer request or spiritual need, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, we would love to have you be our guest during one of our assemblies or classes. You can find a map to our meeting house and a schedule of assemblies and classes on our website as well. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.